Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Two years that have been stolen uh, from Michael Colbring and Michael Sparby. Let's, let's speak truth now. Two years that have been stolen from their families, from their loved ones. And, and you know, uh, I don't think there's an alternative to diplomacy. I mean, if you know one, let me know. The voice of the Foreign Affairs Minister for Canada, Francois-Philippe Champagne, and Mr. Champagne is sounding a lot tougher than he did, or resolute than he has, over the issue of Michaels, Kovrig, and Spavor who are hostages of China. And uh, it's about time that our federal government grew some courage in, in dealing with Beijing, because we've been lectured to by their respective ambassadors, who've uh, essentially threatened us, threatened Canada, with unpleasant repercussions should Canada not see it Beijing's way. And that's what they do. They're just bullies. They, uh, they try to threaten Australia, which is a lot closer to China and uh, has, has more concerns because the Australians don't have the Americans right next door to them to protect them. So they have to pretty much look after their own situation. I mean, we, there are alliances, and of course, if it got to be nasty, then the alliances would step in. But the Australians are far more resolute, far more determined, far more direct, far more uh, impervious to these threats from China. So the two Michaels will be spending Christmas in a Chinese prison for doing what? Oh, yeah, they were in China. At the time, Canada stood up and uh, and uh, respected its treaty obligations with the United States, which issued an extradition warrant for Ms. Meng, who's in, uh, in Vancouver, and is the chief operating officer for Huawei. And uh, so now Canada's on the receiving end of, of anger. Let's talk about this uh, with our... We're always glad to have him with us. A good friend of this program is the former ambassador to China for Canada, 2012 to 2016. So Ambassador Guy Saint-Jacques is of recent vintage when it comes to this country's relations with uh, with China. Ambassador Saint-Jacques, thank you very much for the time. Have we, until the foreign minister said what he said this week, have we been playing a little too cozy, a little too loose, not sufficiently determined ball with China? Well, I would uh, think so, and uh, I have uh, said right from the outset that we have to uh, to play a hardball with the Chinese. We have to be uh, firmer, and I was glad to hear uh, both uh, the Prime Minister and Minister Champagne to to speak more forcefully on China, because uh, you know, to uh, if uh, we look at uh, what we have achieved uh, achieved so, so far with the appeasement strategy with China. After two years, our two Michaels are still in jail. We don't know when they will come back. We have uh, lost uh, billions of dollars in export. Uh, the uh, the Chinese uh, ambassadors, as you said, have uh, uh, 
uh, threaten uh, Canada. And I think it's uh, it's time to be inspired by a country like Australia and for us to take uh, uh, more measures so that uh, China know, uh, knows that uh, the relationship won't be as uh, cozy as uh, uh, it has been in the last few years. Is it Does it make sense for me to assume that China doesn't have, or the Xi government in China, just a dictatorial organization, that they don't have any significant level of respect for Canada based on the treatment of this country, or do they just not respect anybody? Well, the only country that, uh, <clears throat> I'm not sure if they respect, but uh, at least that they fear is the United States. And uh, Canada, well, you know, if we thought that we had uh, a special relationship, I hope that now nobody, especially in Ottawa, thinks that uh, it's still the case. We are a very junior partner for them. Uh, in fact, uh, they have lost interest uh, in us when they realized that there would be uh, no free trade agreement uh, between the two countries. It would have been their first with a G7 country uh, in since we are their 21st uh, export market, uh, we're not very important. Uh, but also what they want to do uh, by punishing us, they want to scare other countries from daring to do something that uh, uh, would go against uh, Chinese interests. There's a, a proverb in Chinese that says, uh, you kill the chicken to scare the monkey, and that's clearly what they are trying to do. But I think that, you know, we have to stand up and, and we, we have to uh, react. Uh, otherwise, it will be our uh, values that we dear uh, uh, precious that uh, run the risk of uh, being uh, constrained. If this had happened, if the two Michaels had been taken hostage by China when Stephen Harper was prime minister, and when you were the ambassador to China, you were in Beijing, would you have expected the federal government or the prime minister's office to instruct you to attend um, the foreign ministry in Beijing and voice objections? Well, in fact, we had a, a similar case. Uh, you will recall that uh, Kevin and Julia Garrett were arrested in August 2014 when uh, Mr. Harper was still the, the, the prime minister. And... Uh, uh, in fact, you know, I was asked to uh, go in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and lodge a very strong protest, and I asked that the two be freed as uh, early as possible. And right from that moment, it was clear that the Chinese were making a direct uh, link with the two. And, you know, as I have said many times in China, there are no uh, coincidences. Uh, in, uh, in that case, uh, we had arrested Su Bin at the request of the U.S. Department of Justice. He was sought for uh, uh, espionage. Uh, and the, the, the Chinese who have uh, a roster of foreign nationals that they are watching at all times, and so quickly they have the, our two uh, uh, Canadians who were doing missionary work uh, in uh, China and in North Korea. And I was told, well, you return Subin and good things will happen to the Garrets. But uh, uh, frankly, you know, the, um, uh, every time there was an opportunity uh, when we had ministers visiting, uh, they always raised those cases. The, the big difference, of course, is that the Chinese didn't cut uh, official channels. What they have done this time is they have cut all dialogues, which means also that uh, uh, poor Ambassador uh, Barton 
in Beijing has uh, limited access. So it's very difficult to, to raise concerns, but that's why, in fact, we have to take measures and we have to respond so that uh, uh, we, we show our uh, displeasure and we put pressure ourselves if, uh, if we can in areas that... Uh, uh, the, the the Chinese uh, like you know for one thing that uh, really surprised me is that uh, before the the COVID uh, and after the the start of the crisis they were still sending delegations to Canada to try to initiate uh, collaboration on uh, uh, artificial intelligence uh, projects and and for me this is something that. Uh, uh, we we have to look at very closely because it raises national security issue. Uh, there is a, a company in Quebec uh, <clears throat> that uh, was selling camera uh, components to a company <clears throat> in uh, China that used these uh, camera to uh, in detention center where in in Xinjiang. And you know why should we help <clears throat> efforts by Chinese companies or the Chinese government to exercise more control on uh, minority uh, groups in in China or on their uh, population? So, I think all this really asks for us to do uh, our homework to look at things more from a national sec- security uh, prism and to uh, to. Uh, stop the cooperation in sectors that we know that the Chinese are eager to pursue. But frankly, uh, you know, the the way that they are treating us, uh, why should uh, we play nice? What's your sense about the delay, the, 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 the unwillingness for the Trudeau government to definitively state where its position is as far as Huawei being engaged with Canada's 5G network is concerned? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that the uh, maybe uh, there are the, Ottawa is aware that there are discussions taking place right now between the U.S. Department of Justice and the legal team of uh, Mrs. Mount to try to see if she would agree to some kind of a plea bargain, and uh, uh, she wouldn't she wouldn't have to go to the U.S. to be prosecuted. I think this may explain also why um, uh, Mr. Xiaoping has not released his uh, revised policy on China. This is something that has been promised for some time. He has been wavering uh, recently. Uh, And so uh, I I take from this that they they don't want to upset the cart, but I assume that if by any chance... uh, Mrs. Meng is returned, and in exchange, our two Canadians uh, come back. That after that, we will hear uh, about the, uh, the the policy uh, on Huawei, and I think that the it should be pretty uh, straightforward, uh, knowing that uh, no company in China can refuse a request from the Chinese government to help out uh, with uh, national security issues. And over there, national the definition of national security is very broad, so. Uh, on that basis, I think that you know it would be legitimate for us to uh, refuse Huawei to participate in 5G development in Canada. Uh, for all practical purposes, my understanding is that in fact uh, Huawei is not allowed, and I think that our communication uh, companies like Telus and Bell have come to the conclusion that uh, if they were to go to the government to seek permission to 
include uh, 5G equipment from Huawei, uh, their request would be uh, turned down, and which is a, a bit similar to the policy put in place by uh, New Zealand. Uh, and of course, uh, we know that uh, you know the Chinese and the previous Chinese ambassador had warned us that if we don't allow Huawei to participate, well, there will be further measures taken against Canada. Now, the bully's on the playground, and we have to stand up to the bully. What was your sense, Ambassador, about the story of People's Liberation Army members training with their Canadian Armed Forces members, and then General uh, Jonathan Vance, the Chief of Defense Staff, putting a stop to that, and immediately there was pushback from Foreign Affairs, uh, Mr. Champagne's ministry. They didn't want to that to happen because nominally they were supposed to be worried about how it might affect the two Michaels, like this government's really shown that they care about the two Michaels. What was your sense about that cooperative reality between the PLA and the CIF? Well, I was uh, really surprised by uh, that uh, decision because, uh, you know, once uh, a country starts to act as a bully uh, with you and punish you, well, obviously you have to look at everything that is going on and say, uh, well, uh, let's stop this, let's stop that. One thing that I said right from the outset, uh, we should kick out uh, Chinese athletes uh, training uh, in Canada uh, in preparation for the Winter Olympics. And, you know, we should simply tell them uh, it's time to go home. In the case of military uh, contacts, uh, I would say that I would like to distinguish here because it's useful to have discussions between the militaries uh, to uh, explain files, to compare notes. But there are areas that uh, should be uh, outside of cooperation. And knowing the interest that the Chinese have for the Canadian Arctic and the resources that uh, are there, I would say that, uh, well, I recall when I was ambassador, you know, the, we, we got requests. The Chinese wanted to come to, to, to uh, watch uh, uh, winter training exercises. Well, I, you know, my position was uh, this is a, a no-no. We, we should not give them any insight in our preparations or how prepared we are to, uh, to fight uh, in Arctic uh, condition, in winter conditions. Uh, and and that should be uh, an area that uh, we always uh, keep uh, out of bound. And right. Uh, in, so I was uh, really surprised by the the uh, reaction, and and good for General Vance to have cancelled that. Yeah, you don't see the um, you don't see the uh, BC Lions sharing their playbook with the Calgary Stampeders. Doesn't happen. You don't let the uh, the opponent know what your tactics may be. Speaking at a media conference, Trudeau was asked about the CRA's recent letters to roughly 441,000 Canadians, suggesting they may need to repay some or all of the monthly 2,000 payments they received by December 31st. The letters sent to Canadians ask for more information from the recipients in order to determine if they meet income eligibility criteria for CERB. Trudeau said this is because some people have committed fraud and companies have also profited in ways that aren't right. You knew that was coming. (laughs) You knew that was going to be there. But he said if Canadians made a, quote, good faith mistake, end quote, while filling out the income eligibility for CERB, they will not be, quote, punished. End quote. Punished? No, 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 no. It's it's called law. 
It's not called punishment. Or it used to be crime and punishment. Anyway, um, it's just, I, I don't understand. You, if you if you made a good faith mistake while filling out the income eligibility for CERB, you will not be punished. Try that April 30th of next year with your income tax return. You know, make a good faith mistake. And then tell the CRA when they get in touch. Oh, it was a good faith mistake. Okay. What may the economic outlook be for Canada and the United States looking ahead to 2021 with the Canadian and U.S. economies tightly intertwined and dealing with the effects of COVID-19? Eric Ham is professor of economics at Ryerson University, macroeconomics, monetary economics, international monetary economics is where Dr. Cam's specialties are. Uh, professor Cam, if, can I ask you to just sort of compress your knowledge into minutia? What does it say to you when a prime minister says, if you made an honest mistake, tell CRA it was that, and then you won't be punished? Makes sense? Uh, no, but I find very little that he does make sense. Um, I've made so many good faith mistakes in my life. I wish I had a dollar for all of them, and then I'd be a, a, a much wealthier person. I, I don't understand what the prime minister is talking about, I, and I love his. I love his. It shouldn't be stressful. I'm glad it's not stressful to the Prime Minister, and I'm glad that at least for about 37 million people, he thinks there shouldn't be anything to make their lives any harder going forward. I don't know. I think sometimes he's the Prime Minister of Dreamland. I just don't understand. <laughs> well, there are some ingredients in the soup that I don't want to try. Uh, how would you assess the Canada's economy today? Uh, well, first of all, before we just jump into that, I have sure. to say um, what you wouldn't tell your mother. Uh, so I, I speak to my mother every day, and my mother really does limit what I'm allowed to say. But the one time I actually, you'll like this story, that I turned her, I turned her down, uh, much to her chagrin, is, um, and I know it may not sound funny on the surface, but I, I actually, due to a, um, a bunch of very odd circumstances, had an uncle fall out of his casket at his funeral, and the first thing my mother did was look at me and say, don't you dare tell this story in lecture. Which, of course, when you're trying to be funny, the first thing I did was tell that story in lecture. So and, I, I very much sympathize with this. Be careful what your mother tells you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. My God, I don't even want to ask about the circumstances. And thanks for telling the whole country. Uh, well, your mom's you know, going to be calling you in a, shortly. My mother's going to call me in about 15 minutes and give me what for. That's another story. Uh, speaking of what for, um, I thought we would break up our discussion today into uh, Canada, the United States, and then pretty much the world in general. You're asking, in general terms, I mean, what is going on with our economy? And our economy is in a very rough shape. Um, as you know, there's been massive downturns, unprecedented downturns, in pretty much all of the macroeconomic variables that we we turn to, um, I've said them before, consumption and investment and exports, all of the things on the, the positive side of the ledger that affect real GDP, all of these things are down. But um, as the good listenership knows, because I get their emails at ericham at ryerson.ca, I have been accused of being uh, a little bit negative. So what I thought we would do is maybe talk about a little bit of the positive for a second before, if it's okay with you, before coming back oh, sure. to what's wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Your assessment is what we're after. Well, my assessment is that Canada's got three growth engines. 
Okay, uh, and it has been this way for a very long time. We have consumer spending, exports, and cheap money. And to that, and to to, to that end, um, I see those three things as as what Canada has a comparative advantage in. And I think those are the things that we're going to try to um, focus on when we uh, as we bounce back. I mean, luckily, the Bank Canada said already the extraordinary monetary stimulus that they provided is going to go on until twenty twenty three. And there's no reason to believe that we're not going to continue with our favorable export environment. Consumption will be supported by not only the Bank Canada, but we have a very resilient labor market, as well as these household support programs that the Prime Minister says shouldn't be a concern whatsoever. Um, But, you know, again, what's wrong with this story, it all sounds very rosy, is that uh, business investment is still a a big part of any economy. And it may not be one of our growth engines, but it's still a growth engine that we can't ignore. And a survey, all these surveys come out about entrepreneurs. And almost to a company, they're saying that um, they'll likely postpone or cancel investment, given the need to get their finances in order. And what are those sectors, as I kind of ramble, and I apologize in advance, the real estate sector, uh, so far, it's basically been unfazed by the crisis, is expected to have a decline. The government isn't exactly bragging about the fact that immigration is going down significantly. And the possible uh, increase of mortgage lending restrictions, both are going to combine to have some downside, especially in big urban centers. The service sector, the poor service sector, um, though dependent on tourism, accommodation, food services, as we've discussed, has just been decimated and we see no great recovery. Um, it's just going to have to wait. It's going to have to wait until um, people have more money in their pocket. And as I'll get to in a second, what's going to happen with managing the pandemic. And so where is Canada? We're in kind of an unenviable position, but not unlike the rest of the world, that we are trying to fix an economy where the problems with the economy tend to be exogenous, meaning that when there's other recessions, they're economically driven recessions. And this is a pandemic driven recession, and that's brand new. So first and foremost, what's the Canadian economy going to do it has to depend on how we manage the pandemic. So 2021 outlooks, and I surveyed all of them this week that I could find, and they all pretty much say the same thing, that the economy could grow, and I say could because I don't have a crystal ball, but it could grow maybe as low as 2%, 3%, some even say 55 but I think that's dreaming. But really, that's going to depend solely, not on the growth engines, but on the mass distribution of the vaccine. Is it going to be early? Is it going to be mid-year? Is it going to be late? I mean, again, good news, low interest rates, stable dollar, predictable geopolitical environment. We limit our risk. But that is all meaningless if we don't get the pandemic under control. Okay, so here's the, here's the, the fundamental journalistic question. Why? Because it, it, it breeds uncertainty. The pandemic okay. in itself, it affects the one part of the economy that even even um, economists uh, at really good schools have trouble modeling, and it's uncertainty. People don't want to take risky risky behavior, play with risky assets. Um, you know, it, it, when there's when there's just such an, an an aura out there that things could actually, God forbid, get worse. So let me ask you this, uh, and then we have to take a break, and we'll come back with you, but. In the United States, and I was just talking about this a little earlier, and maybe you heard it, that they're expecting some 20 million Americans to be inoculated with the vaccine within a matter of weeks. 
or vaccines in the plural. If we tug, trail along with 250,000 people, 300,000 people, 400,000 people, and the Americans start to explode up 50, 60 million, I, I, which is not unlikely, does that put us at a, at a macro disadvantage in dealing with our closest neighbors? It absolutely does. And I mean, the, I know you want to take a break, but quickly, the USA is, is a really interesting story because um, people argue that the pandemic has not been as well controlled as other countries. And there's, co- there's concern about things like coordination failures and political deadlock and division in Washington um, until a lot of these runoff uh, elections happen. But, but in the United States, given that they are going to get the vaccine so much quicker and so much faster, if that comes to pass, then baseline scenarios for economic growth in the States are actually better than Canada and a much more what we call V-shaped recession, which means the plunge was deeper, but the growth is faster. Professor Cam, instead of my wasting the five remaining minutes with first-year economic students' questions, you... I wanted to ask you about small business, but you have, uh, and that's very important, but you have done some preparing for this segment, so please take it where you will. Uh, Well, first of all, none of your questions are a waste of time. I rather enjoy the whole experience. But what I was going to tell everybody that I think is the, if we're looking ahead to 2021, is um, something that my thesis advisor, John Smithin, said about 20 years ago, and people laughed at him. And that, this is what I, I'd like to leave everybody with in terms of sort of an economic um, forecast. And, and, and you know I never offer anything close to an, uh, a real number because I don't have that crystal ball that some economists have that I wish they would share. But I think that as we move forward in 2021, yeah, the big question, of course, is the pandemic and the vaccine and how fast we're going to distribute that. But for me, the second biggest question is have we hit, in a sense, the optimal time for protectionism in our economies? Um, And this is a question that really nobody thought about for a very long time. If you look at academic economics and you look at um, fields that PhD students went into, and if you go on to Bay Street, you know, for how many years, how many decades was the talk? Globalization, globalization, and trade. And these are the backbones of our economy. Well, for the very first time in a very long time, two things are going to happen. Number one is that the world economy in 2020 contracted and, and contracted by almost 5%. And that hasn't happened in, since the Spanish flu. And that probably is not a, uh, not a, not a laughing matter. And, and it's probably very coincidental that it's a pandemic to a pandemic. Central banks around the world, they're using these expansionary policies. They're going to keep rates super low. They're going to try to keep money in people's pockets. And the International uh, Monetary Fund says we could have growth even up to 5%. And it's fine that they come up with these numbers. But, 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 the pandemic has turned people inward. And globalism is now nationalism. And economies are becoming national. And people are starting to, as I say, for the first time since the free trade debate, saying, you know what, maybe we don't need free trade. Maybe we don't need as much free trade. Maybe we don't need as much trade. Maybe we can be self-sufficient. So I guess as my, um, I don't know if we're going to speak again before the end of the year, but the protectionist winds are blowing, and they're causing serious uncertainty. And if they blow stronger um, and industrial self-sufficiency starts to take over, 
then I think we're at a real crossroads because, again, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know what's going to replace international trade. Uh, and, and, and it will never drop to zero. Comparative advantage isn't just going to vanish. But for the first time in anybody listening right now, in their lifetime, people are questioning trade. And I think that's, that's the lesson. I mean, we looked at Canada and the U.S. The question for the world is, for the first time, how important is trade and do we need free trade like we thought we did 20 and 30 years ago? Okay, 30 seconds left. I have to ask you this. Uh, many emails ask this question. If it were so that the, um, the pandemic weren't brought under reasonable control in 2021, does 1929 start to begin? No, 1929 does not start to begin, and I'll tell you why. It's an excellent question, and it's you know it, it, it's 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 the topic of so many books and so many articles. And can can there be another Great Depression? The Great Depression was founded on gross gross mistakes in both monetary and fiscal policy that we are not making today. Um, I can criticize a lot of things. You can criticize a lot of things, but we the, the Bank of Canada. And the Fed in the States is just not going to allow that type of widespread collapse. They may allow debt in the hundreds of trillions that, that your great-grandchildren and my great-grandchildren never pay back. But they are not going to allow this to collapse. This evening, you should really be pay, paying attention to uh, TNR, the new reality on globalnews.ca. Jeff Semple, um, senior correspondent for Global National News, is following up on his spring visit to Humber River Hospital Intensive Care Unit in Toronto with a second visit to the HRH. As cases climb, exhaustion is more of a worry to staff than infection. And a pandemic, writes Jeff in a story on globalnews.ca, which I just tweeted out a link to, exhaustion, pandemic has morphed, rather, from a sprint to a marathon. Jeff Semple joins us on the Chorus Radio Network. Jeff, I, I still remember so clearly your first conversation with me after your initial visit to Humber River Hospital and how eloquently you described what went on at, during those extremely difficult days. What's the most enduring memory? Before I ask you about what's going to be on tonight, what's the most enduring memory of that first visit? Oh, man, that's a good question, Roy. And, yeah, it's great to be back with you to talk about our follow-up visits. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of images stick in my mind from that first visit there back in the spring, back at the peak of the first wave. Um, one of them was that, uh, you know, our camera was actually rolling inside the emergency ward uh, when they were trying to intubate one of their COVID patients. So put that breathing tube down their airway, attach them to the ventilator because the patient could no longer breathe on their own. So they attached them to a ventilator, a breathing machine. And it's a tricky procedure, a life-saving one, but a high-risk one. And in this case, um, you know, th things didn't go well, and suddenly the patient's heart stops beating, uh, and we're there with our camera thinking we'd be filming a routine procedure through the glass, of course, and not identifying the patient, not getting in the way, but, you know, filming from the outside, and suddenly... You know, just a feeling of panic uh, in that room. I mean, suddenly staff started kind of running from all over. Um, you know, they yelled crash cart and they started rushing this cart down the hall with all of these extra sort of defibrillator equipment to try and get their heart beating again. And they did, uh, thankfully. They managed to save that patient's life. Um, but it was just, you know, you sort of pop in for a day and these are the kind of life and death battles that that are happening all the time. And, you know, another image that really stuck in my mind was um, the fact that it was eerily quiet in parts of the hospital because patients were just staying away. 
um, like non-COVID patients, right, were afraid to go into hospital. And we saw repercussions of that as well. People waiting too long, in one case, an elderly woman who had undiagnosed leukemia, who waited until she was very sick to go in. Uh, we met her, and the next day she passed away. So it was, you know, a lot of horrific trauma. And of course, we were there for, you know, a couple of days. But this is this is day in and day out for these frontline healthcare workers that yeah. have been dealing with this now for 10 months straight. They're, they're amazing people. So you, you return to Humber Ribble Hospital in your story on globalnews.ca. Begins with a woman pregnant and just days from her due date, and she began feeling sick. What happened? Yeah, yeah, and I mean, this has been a reality for, you know, a lot of people, anyone who's been pregnant uh, during a pandemic has had to endure quite a lot. Uh, but for some people, the timing is, is, has proved awful in that, including this one woman, a young woman named Alexandra Abril, who was just days away from her due date, suddenly started f- not feeling well at all with the fever and the chills. She went in, she got tested, and she tested positive for COVID-19, um, you know, just days away from her due date, as I say. So she was actually ended up giving birth um, on the final day of her quarantine, they tested the baby. They put the swabs up the two baby's two nostrils, which was excruciating to watch. But thankfully, the baby tested negative. But one of the reasons we were sort of interested in that example is because it is one of many that illustrates how things in the hospital have changed dramatically and how they have just gotten a better understanding of the virus, a better understanding of how to treat the virus, how to respond to all these different situations. So in the maternity ward, for example, back in the first wave, a number of, you know, different hospitals would actually separate an infected mother from her newborn. They would keep the newborn away from mom for up to two weeks, potentially, right, to make sure that mom no longer had the virus to ensure that baby didn't get infected. Um, And, you know, there were all kinds of concerns about whether the baby might be able to get sick in the womb through the placenta and all of that. The short answer to a lot of these questions is, is a good one in that, you know, babies have proved remarkably resilient. Um, and um, so, you know, they do monitor these situations very closely, but they do allow mom and baby to stay together now, as they did in this case. The mom, they just tell mom, you know, wear a mask, wash your hands, try and limit exposure. They're not worried about the virus transmitting through breastfeedings, for example. Um, so now mom and baby could, can stay together and can go home together. Um, but that, you know, often wasn't the case back in the first wave. Yeah. Uh, and as you say, there's less fear among the staff and they're dealing with COVID uh, no longer as a sprint, but more as a marathon. What about Dr. Michael Garden? He's been uh, a guest on many radio and television programs, been a guest on this program. Garden, you, you, you found out that uh, some very personal information about him. That's right. Yeah. I mean, you know, as you say, we used to interview him often. And um, in the first wave of COVID-19, uh, he was uh, chief of staff at Humber River Hospital. So we'd often talk to him then. But, you know, there are there is plenty of global news footage in our archives of interviews with Michael Gardham during the SARS outbreak back in 2003 and then H1N1 and then Ebola. So he has been, you know, in a number of leadership positions on the front lines of a whole host of outbreaks and has given just countless interviews and always just really rock solid in my experience of just giving very measured, very calm public health advice, often in extremely stressful situations. But then in the summer, uh, we heard that Michael Garden was no longer at that hospital in Toronto, no longer at Humber River Hospital. And when I started asking around, I found out that he had had a heart attack. Um, and, you know, his case really underscores the pressures that these public health workers face. Uh, what happened was um, he was back in May during a regular shift and he described just the pressure that he felt. I mean, 
the you know the entire city and in some respects the entire country looking to him and his colleagues for advice and he's just getting hit with these waves of fear as he put it over and over again and trying to make these life or death decisions affecting potentially millions of people and the pressure is hard to imagine and you know so one day in may he's in the hospital he gets a pain in his chest and he's having a heart attack and he managed to get himself into the emergency ward thankfully the type of heart attack he had was very similar to the one that's known as the Widowmaker, where you have a very, you know, short window and, and you know, very reduced chance of survival. So it is it was a very serious heart attack. Um, as far as heart attacks go, of course, they're all serious. But this was a bad one. And thankfully, because he was in the hospital, he got the treatment that he needed right away. And now, you know, several months later, he's made a full recovery, but he's also made a life change. He's moved out of Toronto. Uh, to Prince Edward Island and now has a house um, near the ocean. Like obviously a much like easier pace of life, I think, out there. He talked a lot about you can just rush hour traffic um, and the incredible differences. Um, he's still working full time, but doing a lot of that work remotely. But, um, you know, given all the experiences that he's had and how hard he has worked over the many decades for, for many of us, uh, it was certainly scary to see that this pandemic and the pressures from it nearly cost him his life. So uh, on the near reality uh, this evening, TNR, globalnews.ca, what's, what's, the, what's the takeaway, Jeff, after the two visits? The visit during phase one or the first wave and then the, uh, the second wave. What, what do you take away from all of this? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think, you know, as we've been alluding to, the, one of the biggest takeaways is that these frontline healthcare workers do seem exhausted. Uh, I mean, they were almost joking, you know, half joking about, you know, remember the before and after picture of Barack Obama, sort of before he was president and after he was president, you know, eight years looked more like 30 years, the poor guy, right? And now, you know, that's how one of the health workers sort of described it, like they just, they look and sound exhausted. So on one hand, they're more confident and more relaxed, uh, certainly than we saw in the first wave. And that's because they have a whole host of better treatments. Um, you know, they know how to they use steroids like dexamethasone, for example. They know how to put patients onto ventilators more safely. Um, they have alternatives to putting them on ventilators now that they weren't using before. So their treatment is better. They're sounding more confident, but they are also sounding exhausted. And as they see the case count, you know, clip up and up here in the second wave, and, and as we head towards Christmas now and all the concerns that people may disregard public health advice and gather with in large groups and with their families anyway, um, you know, you have frontline healthcare workers who are really running on empty. Um, and I mean, you know, politics aside, I think we can all sort of like our, my heart breaks for them because, um, you know, they are, they are the ones who are dealing with the results of this in a very real way and in a way that it's hard to understand for the rest. Let's talk now with Dr. Marco Iraq, who is an emergency medicine physician at Humber River Hospital. Dr. Iraq, thank you so much for, for coming on the program. Um, I guess my fundamental question is, what are the most significant changes to emergency medicine since the arrival of COVID-19? Thanks for, for having me. Um, I think the overall mentality of, of how we prepare for patients and how we um, prepare for patients with possible COVID and patients that were resuscitating has changed significantly. So in the era before COVID, um, anything can roll in the door. And if, if you need to resuscitate a patient, you would have, uh, similar to what you heard earlier on your show, you'd have a team rush in with the crash cart and, and perform the work we need to perform. Uh, what COVID did to us was it threw a wrench in the entire uh, algorithm because now we have a patient coming in and 
they could have COVID, they could not. But we need to we need to presume that they do have COVID because we need to protect ourselves. We need to protect the healthcare workers who who are going to be required to care for other patients. So we've created what are called protective code blues. So what that means essentially is we need to put on our protective uh, uh, personal equipment before we come in and care for a patient, and, and that's been uh, quite a challenge for us even from the start. We've we've had to actually re-educate ourselves and create guidelines and procedures for this. And it's, it's a difficult process to go through because you have a patient that you may need to be performing CPR on right away, but you, you first need to put on your PPE uh, so that it's safe. So it's been also both a physical change, but it's also been a psychological change for the uh, clinicians and uh, healthcare providers. Well, it has to be stressful for you to uh, to move forward under conditions such as this when your instinct and your training is to leap right in and, and get at it. So uh, let me ask you this. What happens if someone tests positive in the emergency room? So we have, you know, we, we, we sometimes would know, let's say from a long-term care home, a patient is coming in, we would know that they're COVID positive, mm-hmm. um, in which case we're able to prepare ahead of time or, or as the patient's arriving with the paramedics. And uh, we, we separate them into their own room, and we have the fortune of River having uh, quite a few uh, negative pressure rooms where we can keep the patients safely there, that it's safe for the patients and also for the healthcare providers. So when we know ahead of time, we're able to prepare ahead of time, and, and for the most part, care goes on as it normally would, just uh, with PPE. However, if we have a patient that comes in with what we call presumed COVID, um, so they might come in with difficulty breathing or their oxygen saturations are low and we don't have a test that confirms that they have COVID, we need to treat them as a possible COVID patient. Um, and all it means is it means planning ahead of time before the patient comes into the room and then once they're in the room, we need to plan ahead and bring most of our equipment with us into the room to minimize in and out. Um, and it can create a logistic challenge, but you know, when you look at the differences between wave one and wave two, we've, you know, we've, we've worked hard on minimizing the interruption to the patient care. Dr. Iraq, we, we hear about people fearing to go to the hospital when they experience worrying symptoms. Uh, mm-hmm. just, just general health symptoms that concern them, their own. They're fearful they may contract COVID-19 at the hospital. What do you say to people about, about such fears? I mean, plainly, I say, if you have a healthcare concern, come see us. Uh, we're safe. The processes we have in place are there to keep you safe as well. Um, you know, you, you often hear about silent pandemics. And in fact, this was echoed back during SARS, uh, where there were quite a few chronic uh, conditions that patients would hold off on um, and, in fact, would, would have worse outcomes because of the fear of the illness in the healthcare environment. Uh, during COVID, and we, especially during Wave 2, we've seen, we've seen this mirrored. We've seen patients coming in more sick and often with more progressive and delayed uh, symptoms and onset of symptoms. So I would tell people not to delay their care. And I would let them know that we do the best we can to keep them safe. It's why we have visitor policies, and it's why we have the social distancing procedures that we have. Okay. I don't want to presuppose I have all the questions. Uh, so would you just share with us what you would like people to know and understand uh, about COVID, about about hospitals, about, about what you do as an emergency medicine physician? Just talk to us about that a little bit, please. Sure. I mean, this virus, you've heard the word used a lot, is, is unprecedented. What, what makes it unprecedented is the fact that as advanced as our medicine is and as advanced as, advanced as our technology has become, uh, we 
uncovered a virus that has presented a both medical and um, logistics uh, challenge to the entire world, not just one region, but to the entire world. However, despite that, what you can see both in the progression of the technology to test the virus and also in the progression of how quickly we were able to come up with, you know, not one, but multiple vaccines, um, it, it goes to show that the healthcare infrastructure, both in Canada and around the world, is is robust to to respond to a threat like this. More locally, I mean, I'd want people to know that, you know, the emergency room is still there. We're still there to care for all conditions and all illnesses. We haven't stopped working. Uh, we're 24-7. We're going to continue to be 24-7. Uh, but on the flip side, and this has been mentioned, you know, this is, this is now a marathon, but it's a marathon without any fixed end. So there is some level of fatigue. Uh, so I would just want people to know that we're there to help them but also to understand from our end, you know, we're doing the best that we can as well. Well, I, I don't think anybody doubts that. Um, we, we have great respect for you in the healthcare professions because you do such an amazing job in taking care of people. In about 35 seconds, which is what we have left, what are your thoughts about lockdowns? You know, I think I think there's great expertise out there. That, that, that there's a reason why lockdowns were were brought up and mentioned. Uh, there's epidemiologic experts that are able to indicate what what we need to do to stop this virus. The fact of the matter is, is this virus is something we can't see, and if we can't see what we're spreading, it's hard to stop it. Uh, I think the purpose of lockdowns is to put a failsafe in in the entire society. Um, to help stop the spread. So, I mean, they're, they're a necessary tool. They're a painful tool that we've had to go through. And it's one that there is no quick or easy answer, which is, I think, why we have so much frustration with what kind of lockdown do we have or not have. Um, you know, if the answer was simple, we would have done it by now. But, but I think yeah. they're a necessary tool. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.